I'm speaking today with the 2018 Hallberg Laureate, Professor Cass Sunstein. Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard Law School, where he is the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. He is the most frequently cited legal scholar in the world. His work has redefined several academic fields, and the practical applications of his research have had far-reaching impact on public policy. Sunstein served as the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs from 2009 to 2012. He is the author of 48 books, including Nudge with Richard Thaler, and more recently, Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media, and Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. In addition, he has written The World According to Star Wars, and he is also a professional squash player. Professor Cass Sunstein, thank you for joining us on the Hallberg Podcast, and congratulations on being selected for the 2018 Hallberg Prize. For about four decades, you have been a highly influential scholar whose academic work spans a number of disciplines, including behavioral economics and public policy, constitutional law and democratic theory, legal theory and jurisprudence, administrative law, and the regulation of risk. I would like to start by asking you about what led you to where you are today. Going back to your childhood and adolescence, did you read a lot back then? And were there certain books that you found particularly inspiring? Well, I was greatly inspired by Spider-Man and also by Thor, the god who had a hammer that was very powerful, and the Fantastic Four and other comic books. Uh, uh, I think because they heightened the imagination and made one think of uh, good things that might happen and uh, the importance of virtues. But the comic book industry, I think, did not inspire my academic interests. Uh, my mother thought reading was fantastic, whatever it was. And in a time when reading comic books was a little uh, déclassé and one was supposed to be reading, you know, high-minded novels, um, it wasn't that uh, cool to be reading comic books, at least as far as parents were concerned. Uh, but I think my mother made the right call, which was, if someone's interested in reading, uh, uh, go for it. When and when were you initially drawn to studying law? It was actually in my probably junior year of college. I, I took a course um, by a wonderful professor who emphasized not only the challenge of figuring out what the rule of law is, uh, and once you figured out what it is, why it's important, but also emphasized the relationship between law and theories of justice. So I was really introduced in that course to the uh, great debates in political theory between those who believe that consequences are what matter, Jeremy Bentham, of course, uh, a leader there, and those who believe that, um, that rights are prior to the good. Uh, John Rawls, the American political philosopher, is a uh, uh, very influential figure there. And uh, these debates completely fascinated me. And having studied not comic books but literature for my, uh, my years in college and before, uh, to see the um, openness of the territory that is law and uh, theories of justice was uh, inspiring. What about your focus on how behavioral economics bear on law? What triggered your interest in that topic? Probably it was a, a, a mixture of original focus on literature, so the 
uh, kid reading I did of the superhero novels actually culminated in a fascination with um, uh, Samuel Beckett and James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and uh, novels and poems. Uh, that gives a sense of the complexity of human motivations. So if you say, as economists uh, often did and to some extent still do, that people are rational, self-interested, profit maximizers, and then you read Waiting for Godot, uh, Vladimir and Estragon don't seem to be rational, self-interested, profit maximizers, and uh, Spider-Man, though he's trying to do good for the world, he kind of gets himself in trouble. He has a lot of teenage angst. And um, uh, being a literary person by kind of training, uh, uh, my exposure to economic theories of politics and law, which came really at the University of Chicago, was extremely jarring. Uh, they were brilliant people, and they, you know, people don't get more able than uh, Gary Becker, who's a great economist, George Stigler, a great economist, Milton Friedman, a great economist. And the idea was that uh, people, you know, whether they get addicted to drugs or don't save for retirement or get divorced or um, make terrible economic choices, they, they, they did what they wanted to do, and it was rational. And that seemed to me not correct. And uh, I was privileged to encounter relatively early in my career uh, some work by behavioral scientists that um, uh, shattered, in my view, the rational actor models of behavior. And uh, Norway's own Jan Elster, who was a great colleague and a beloved friend of mine, in many ways a mentor for me, uh, exposed me to uh, some of the behavioral science and the complexities of rationality. And once I saw um, the work on where people depart from rationality, they care about fairness, they care about kindness, they often run risks they shouldn't, they get addicted, they fall in love with the wrong person. And when once I saw this could be actually systematized, uh, the application of this material to law and policy seemed both natural and electrifying. And once I saw that as a possibility, I was uh, I felt like I was I was on a rocket ship and we were going very fast. Uh, talking about this intellectual journey of yours, uh, how much did it depend on the particular academic environment at the University of Chicago? Could it have happened elsewhere? I think I was blessed, really, to be at the University of Chicago, and I'm not at all sure that um, what I've been privileged to work on would have happened without the University of Chicago. So, in a way, uh, my interest in departures from rationality, my interest in, um, uh, let's say, a more capacious sense of human rights than at least many Americans have accepted, was a rebellion, kind of an adolescent rebellion against my admired University of Chicago uh, colleagues, fathers. And so that uh, tension between my admiration for their evident excellence and my skepticism that they, they had said the final word was essential to uh, what I ended up writing. Also at the University of Chicago, there were people, and I'll just mention a few, uh, uh, Gary Becker and Richard Posner, who were uh, were, and Posner still is, he's with us, uh, uh, basically devoted to rational actor ways of thinking and a, a judgment about law and policy and environmental protection and uh, policy that relates to the poor that was connected with rational actor models. But both Posner and 
Becker were at the time, and Posner still is, very curious people. And I remember speaking about early ideas I had about um, uh, addiction and procrastination and shifting preferences, how preferences aren't stable, that Becker found completely wrong. But he looked at me with such intensity and curiosity that it signaled uh, what I probably didn't deserve, which was respect. And that really surprised me. This great man showed such respect, but it also uh, emboldened me because I thought if if he respected what I was doing, maybe I should do that too. And maybe there was something here, even if he thought in the end it was nonsense. So that was very important and a distinctly University of Chicago thing. Uh, Jan Elster's presence at the University of Chicago uh, was essential, and there were others at the university at the time who were getting at questions that bore on, you know, what countries should be doing now, as well as questions of whether Immanuel Kant was right or not. Uh, So the deepest theoretical issues and the most kind of urgent policy questions, they were attacking them from multiple different angles. And the fact that Chicago is a very intense place where everyone talks to each other and where disagreement is uh, welcomed and where you're a little bit like a, a young child or a puppy dog who's thrown in the water and told, now swim, that's, um, uh, that's helpful. At least I found it terrifying but helpful. Uh, your work is uh, so extensive that I can only touch upon a couple of, book, of your books during this conversation. Also, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on a few of the pressing issues of our time as they relate to both regulation and constitutional law. One of the issues that underlie very different strands of your work is free speech. So in your award-winning 1993 book, Democracy and the Problem of Free Speech, you argue that there is a need to reformulate the First Amendment and that it is necessary to move from the conception of free speech as a marketplace in order to quote, reinvigorate processes of democratic deliberation by ensuring greater attention to public issues and greater diversities of use. Yes. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, and I'm pondering as you speak whether I still agree with that youngster who wrote that book in 1993, but I think he wasn't entirely wrong. And the, the argument of the book is that we should see our free speech principle first and foremost as one that is designed to enable the preconditions for self-government. And if we see free speech in those terms, we will certainly uh, abhor censorship of political ideas. Um, We might not be so uh, negative about regulation, let's say, of uh, false advertising or of uh, misleading commercials. Uh, We would have a focus on the democratic uh, process, and that's uh, what the First Amendment is essentially about. We might also think that uh, certain things that might be designed to promote a well-functioning democratic process, like, for example, campaign finance regulation or efforts to um, promote access to the public, of views that would not otherwise be enabled to get access to the public, those things would not only not be forbidden by the free speech principle, but would be compatible with it and potentially even uh, required by it. 
So some countries, I think, do have either an implicit or explicit understanding that uh, free speech is um, best understood as uh, a continuing uh, problem, meaning we need to make sure our culture of free expression is promoting the goals of a system of free expression, whereas some countries, I think, are, are thinking uh, that if the government gets out of the picture, that's sufficient. That's certainly, in some areas, really important. We don't want the government saying, you know, you're criticizing us, so you can't talk. Uh, but to see the First Amendment principle through the lens of the preconditions for democratic deliberation is probably very important if the occasionally endangered democratic ideal is to, uh, uh, you know, is to survive. And a former Holberg Prize winner, uh, Jürgen Habermas, I think did fantastic work on the foundations of democratic self-government and uh, his emphasis, um, some of it, you know, very, very deeply philosophical rather than applied. So I'm going to take a little liberties with it. But when he's, he writes of the forceless force of the better argument, I think that's a very arresting picture of what a democracy um, uh, needs. And if you just have people shouting at each other or people who are wealthy drowning people out or if you have fake news, uh, the forceless force of the better argument might not prevail. Aside from what you've mentioned now, are there essential ways in which you believe free speech laws need to be changed? Well, I would right now emphasize more uh, private conduct than I would uh, legal conduct. So the great providers of social media platforms, uh, Facebook and Twitter are two, ought to be thinking, I think, very self-consciously about their massively important role in systems of free expression. And Facebook actually has made some uh, good movements in the last six months or so towards greater transparency with respect to its own practices and towards um, ensuring that fake news is not um, uh, adversely affecting people's capacity to govern themselves and also ensuring that uh, uh, the echo chamber phenomenon by which people just listen to louder and louder versions of their own voices, that that isn't something that their own platform encourages. So first and foremost, that, not government. Um, every nation, of course, has its own uh, culture and its own challenges. Uh, in my view, the, the notion that commercial advertising is at the core of the free speech principle, as some people believe, is, is not correct and is potentially dangerous. So I would soften the use of uh, free speech principles as a restriction on advertising, certainly of false and misleading advertising, but also of advertising that can be producing harms for children and others. Uh, if we have a culture that is uh, using uh, such mechanisms as it has uh, to promote uh, airing of diverse views, for example, through financial subsidies and such, it's probably a good idea to see that as uh, consistent with a free speech culture rather than a problem. Does that mean that you emphasize more the communitarian than the liberal uh, underpinnings of free speech theory? No. Mm. I, I would go fully for the liberal underpinnings. Mm. Uh, the communitarian alternative uh, uh, seems to me sometimes very obscure and sometimes worrisome. Um, 
but we have to understand the liberal tradition properly. So the liberal tradition includes, in my country, James Madison, who was um, a great theorist of free expression as a democratic ideal. And the liberal tradition includes um, many theorists who have emphasized the relationship between free expression and citizenship. And uh, citizenship, I, I worry that once we speak of communitarianism as an alternative to liberalism, we are uh, veering in the direction of authoritarianism. I worry about that. A, a, or veering in the direction of some kind of uh, soup, which is not going to give us enough analytical precision. But I would say that at its best, the communitarian uh, tradition is emphasizing uh, important facts, which is that there's an enterprise of self-government, which we are all, it is profoundly to be hoped, that we are all able to participate in. Uh, in in the democracy and the problem of free speech, you express concern over the present situation in which like-minded people speak or listen mostly to one another. You further explored this topic, as well as the dilemmas of modern technology in several books, including Republic.com in 2001 and hashtag Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media last year. To what extent do you find that echo chambers and social polarization constitute a serious threat to public discourse, and by extension to the foundations of liberal democracy? I think it's, it's a very serious problem. So uh, pick your country. Uh, my hope is that uh, Norway and uh, countries in the area are not suffering from this. But in, in many countries, um, it just is the case that the proliferation of social media and communications options uh, makes it easy for people, either through their own choices or because of an algorithm, basically to live in their own communications universe, which is different from that that their fellow citizens live in. And if you have your own communications universe, it may be that um, you don't get access to points of view or to topics that uh, could expand your horizons, uh, cause you to see things differently, maybe even change your life, and possibly make you uh, kinder and more understanding of points of view that you might otherwise think are in the trash can. So one thing that I've been thinking about, actually, as, even as we speak, is that the notion of polarization and division actually understates the situation in some countries or in some parts of some countries. It's less polarization than it's a form of uh, contemporary Manichaeism, where the, uh, all the old prophet Mani from the third century founded uh, a, a religion which saw the forces of light and the forces of darkness in some sort of, uh, you know, uh, deathly struggle. And that's worse than division. We, we do have a form of Manichaeism, I think, in, uh, in several countries now. The United Kingdom has some. The United States has some. France and Germany have some. Um, and that's very worrisome because if you see people as the forces of darkness, uh, life is not Star Wars. And if you see people as the forces of darkness, then you're going to have a hard time uh, treating them with respect or learning from them. And social media and the current communications universe are uh, definitely contributing to this. Here's another way to think of it. 
a communications universe can involve a, a, uh, an architecture of control where you individually, this is not about the state, you individually have full control over the points of view and topics that you get access to. So if what you're interested in is uh, classical music and football and the horrors of the European Union, those are the three things you can hear about. If you're interested in popular music and, um, let's say, uh, uh, the World Cup, uh, those can be the things you, you hear, only those. And that architecture of control, which can be a product not only of your choices, but of algorithms that are building on your choices, should be contrasted with an architecture of serendipity, where you will see things that are, uh, you know, very different from what you would have chosen. So just before we started this discussion, uh, I was over at a bookstore, and there are all these books in the bookstore. And some of them, I had no idea they existed. The whole topic was new to me. Uh, the topic seemed really interesting, something from which anyone who saw the table could learn something extremely new and uh, puzzling and expanding. And that's fantastic. And democracies need uh, an architecture of serendipity, not just an architecture of control. Each of us in our individual lives can move toward an architecture of serendipity. We can go to the bookstore. We can seek out things that aren't uh, you know, what we would normally feel most comfortable with. Also, uh, an organization, whether it's a provider of information, a provider of podcasts, or uh, a newspaper, large or small, or a startup can be in favor of control or it can be in favor of serendipity. And both can be very successful business models. So you can make a lot of money one way or the other. And um, let's say money-making should also be good-doing and an architecture of serendipity has the promise of that. You mentioned now the, the personalized algorithms and the threat that they make to our ability to understand our fellow citizens. Artificial intelligence may be a factor here that might strengthen this. So how big is this threat, really? You suggested an alternative, but how easy would it be to establish this alternative? I think pretty easy, and artificial intelligence is um, a, a mechanism and not necessarily a, a problem. It's not an agent. So you could, with the aid of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, expose people to something like what a good daily newspaper does. It could be much better. Uh, it could expose you to a range of things that are interesting and important and true. Or you could, with the aid of artificial intelligence or machine learning, uh, just expose people to a uh, uh, kind of a more provocative version of what they already think. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, there was a terrific film called Her, which was really about artificial intelligence. It was about a uh, uh, an operating system with the name Samantha, who knew everything about our, our hapless hero. Of course, he fell in love with her. Uh, she knew how to make that happen. And... Uh, the theme of the movie really is that uh, the artificial intelligence can be uh, seductive and kind of perfect at knowing you, but there's something dehumanizing about that. And one thing that makes the movie so brilliant is that it shows the uh, ambiguity 
of its central claim, where our hero ends up uh, interested in a real human being who was not the perfect match for him that the operating system was, uh, nonetheless, go for the person. Would these filter bubbles be less problematic if they were clearly visible and something we could choose to turn on or off? Is it kind of customizable daily me, preferable to an invisible, elusive algorithm? Transparency is good, sure. So if you know you're being algorithmed, let's say, into uh, uh, an echo chamber, it's better than if you are um, without your... Uh, knowing it being algorithmed, I'm just making up on this occasion. By the word, by the way, algorithm as a verb. I'm not sure I'm proud of that, but there we are. Uh, the transparency is good, but it's not sufficient. So, if we had a culture where transparency with respect to the actions of algorithms on social media or the, or the internet generally was legally required. Um, that would be uh, a positive step, but it wouldn't be an adequate step. So if you think of a, a great city, I've, I've been to Oslo, and you know, if you walk around Oslo for even 10 minutes, what you're going to see is going to, if you're looking, amaze you. You'll see buildings and people and history and uh, uh, politics possibly and stores and culture that even in 10 minutes that you would not have necessarily chosen in your, uh, in your stream, in your communication stream. And if you think of a city like Oslo or uh, Copenhagen or San Francisco, they have this in common. And a well-functioning media environment uh, is like a, a city. Like the bookstore I was just at is like a little version of a great city where, whoa, you see all these things that... Uh, you would you didn't know they existed, let alone that you wanted them. But you might think, you know, darn it, I'm going to buy that book. And I, I'm thinking exactly that. And so transparency wouldn't be sufficient if you know you're in, you know, the world of that movie Her. The, the, our, our hero in the movie Her was not um, tricked. He knew. Uh, nonetheless, he fell for the operating system. In addition to being a scholar, you have been heavily involved in policymaking as the U.S. chief regulatory czar, and it would be almost a bit odd if you were completely unknown to controversy. In 2008, a paper called Conspiracy Theories sparked not only some controversy, but one might even say the very kind of conspiracy theories it sought to address. In the paper, you suggest various ways of combating conspiracy theories, and you recommend approaches such as government infiltration, while seemingly keeping the door open to outright banning the proliferation of conspiracy theories under certain circumstances. What is your opinion on how to best handle fake news and conspiracy theories through government regulation? Well, more speech is the best way. So if there's a conspiracy theory or fake news, the best remedy is truth. And uh, the paper to which you refer, it is a great saga. It, it was published in the Journal of Political Philosophy, and it was subject to extensive uh, peer review and comments by colleagues. And nobody read it the way that it ended up being read, not one person. So if you'd asked me what of my various uh, scribblings would cause an uproar, I wouldn't have put this in the top 100 or 200. 
which shows you something interesting. It might be just my own obtuseness. But the, uh, the paper is really almost entirely about why people believe false conspiracy theories. And then it has a short discussion of what to do about them. That's not what the paper is mostly about. And it does list a bunch of ideas you could tax, you could ban. It doesn't embrace any of those. I think it's implicit in the paper, so, so clear from the paper that the authors don't like that idea. I had a, uh, Adrian Vermeule as my co-author. We don't believe in it that, that to address it would be to dignify the idea of banning it. I think we say under imaginable circumstances, but you know, under imaginable circumstances, pigs can fly. Barely imaginable. Have to be very skinny pigs with wings, but you can imagine that. Um, the idea of, of uh, infiltrating groups actually meant in context, suppose you have a group of people who are um, in, you know, Afghanistan or uh, some country where terrorism is being bred, and they believe, let's say, that uh, Norway and the United States are conspiring to blow up Afghanistan or to kill people who have the wrong religion. And let's stipulate what I'm confident is true, that this conspiracy theory is false. Uh, and it's getting young people who are literally dangerous and potentially murderers uh, stirred up to do stuff. Then what do you do? And the idea is you correct the record. And there are two ways to correct the record. One is for people from Norway or the United States to go in there and tell the truth. And the other is for people from the United States and Norway to work with people in those countries to get the people who are credible there to tell the truth. And uh, the word we used for it is cognitive infiltration, which only an academic would love, I guess. Uh, it surprised me, but it shouldn't have, that that became an inflammatory term. But it's, it's a conventional practice. It's not something that democracies refrain from doing, which is when people are believing a conspiracy theory that could lead to violence, uh, to either correct the record directly with your own people or to work with people on the ground to do it. And that's a longstanding practice, and there's nothing uh, original about our suggestion, and there's nothing, I think, uh, even especially provocative about it. Um, if we focus on, on regulation, do you think there is any kind of effective regulation on this issue? That will, will this, if it is effective, will it come into conflict with the First Amendment? Well, when you say regulation, my work in government was about, you know, the environment and health and safety, and I didn't do anything in, in this domain or, or come within a million miles of it. Um, if, let's say, there are people in a country that is very unfriendly to Norway, let's say, who are planning terrorist activity against Norway, for Norway to work with friendly countries or for Norway on its own to work with friendly people in those countries where dangerous is, danger is being bred, to say that the theory that says that Norway, and this is a little crazy, but there are areas where it's not crazy, that Norway and Denmark and Sweden are conspiring to kill thousands and thousands of Muslims. And that's breeding hatred for people in Norway through their elected representatives to have people correct the record with, let's say, the very people who are drawn 
to the conspiracy theory, either directly or by working with people in those countries who were not believing this crazy rumor. That's not inconsistent with the First Amendment. That's, there's no free speech principle that that conflicts with. So, the, so in a way, I, I want to be you know, quite serious here that the, uh, the risk of violence from terrorism isn't a game, and it doesn't involve hypotheticals. Real people have been really killed, and a number of the people who do the killing are in the grip of a, of a view of reality, which is crazy. But they are not necessarily themselves crazy. They've learned that from people whom they trust. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? And the idea that doing something about it through speech is violative free speech principle, that would be very surprising. Uh, last year, the 2017 Holberg Laureate British philosopher Honora O'Neill argued that we would have to be ready for bold approaches to the problem of fake news. And she proposed that Internet service providers should probably be treated as publishers rather than mere platforms so that they would be, for instance, be subject to loss and on defamation and so on. What's your view on that uh, approach? I, I don't think I agree with that. I, I, I greatly admire Professor O'Neill. She's a, a hero of mine. Uh, I don't think I agree with that. Um, and here's the reason. If you had, let's say, on uh, Twitter, uh, a defamatory comment by someone who tweets, and if Twitter was itself responsible, um, the risk is that the social harm done by that libel suit would outstrip the social gain. If Twitter, let's say, would have to pay, you know, let's say a lot of euros, then the capacity of Twitter to, to run its system would be greatly undermined. And the question is, what incremental value is there by making Twitter itself responsible for the defamation, as opposed to saying that the person who tweeted is responsible for the defamation. So I'm, I'm not sure that the, the benefits would justify the costs. Uh, having said that, I do think for social media providers, including Twitter and Facebook, to be very aggressive at preventing things that would violate, let's say, uh, widespread understandings of what criminal and civil law forbid, that's an excellent idea. And Facebook... Um, uh, has been, you know, very recently, that is in 2018, has been uh, clear about what the community standards are, and they do include some of the uh, takedown uh, policies that application of the law would call for. And uh, for Facebook to be engaged with, let's say, uh, people of many countries to see whether they've struck the right balance is, is very important and to have um, outside consultation with people who think they haven't struck the right balance is, is quite important. Uh, another way to put it is that, you know, uh, uh, Professor O'Neill is a, uh, a Kantian, maybe the greatest living Kantian, and uh, uh, though you know, no one is greater than Kant, uh, I think, uh, I would uh, want, in this context at least, to have a more utilitarian framework and it can't be just concluded that her recommendation is, is not correct on utilitarian grounds, but it would require uh, 
a pretty uh, detailed um, uh, investigation of what the concrete consequences would be of holding, let's say, Twitter or Instagram uh, liable for defamation would be. And um, I'm not convinced that it would be positive. One of your most well-known works in the, is the 28th book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, which you wrote together with Richard Thaler, uh, where you discuss how public authorities and private organizations can help people make better choices in their daily lives. Could you briefly explain the essence of what is known as nudge theory? Yes, so think of it as, if you would, as uh, extending the idea of a GPS device to lots of stuff. So a GPS device um, nudges you in the sense that it tells you something about how to get where you want to go, but it completely preserves your freedom of choice if you think that the suggested uh, route uh, is you know, not pretty or not familiar to you or not fun, then you can say, okay, GPS, you've had your say, but it's up to, up to me. Uh, if you get information about the caloric content of food or the uh, economic savings of an energy-efficient refrigerator, that's definitely a nudge. It preserves your freedom of choice, but it steers you in a direction that's probably going to be helpful for you. If you get warnings on uh, a package saying that this contains nuts, in case you're allergic to nuts, or if you get warnings accompanying medicine about not taking more than a certain dosage, that's completely a nudge. Now, in some cases of warnings, violation of the warning could run afoul of the law. Um, if it does, then we're going beyond a nudge. Uh, if you are automatically enrolled in certain programs uh, just by virtue of being a citizen or an employee with the capacity to opt out, uh, that is definitely a nudge. If you are looking at a menu at a restaurant and it has uh, some uh, meals in big, bold letters and they're listed first, that's a nudge. So think of this as a universe of things that uh, make life often simpler and easier uh, but that allow you to say, you know, I, I want that. If you look at a, a good airport, it is full of nudges about how to get to the restaurant, restaurants, how to get to the restrooms, how to get to your gate, um, how to get to the shops. Those are kind of self-serving nudges. But, but that's what we're talking about. If we have a prohibition or a mandate or a tax or a subsidy, then we're not speaking about nudges anymore. So that's where you draw the distinction between a nudge and an act of coercion, then? or Completely. Yeah. Does it maintain freedom of choice? Does it impose any material incentives on people? If it maintains freedom of choice, it's a nudge. If it imposes material incentives on people, then we've crossed the, the line into something else. In Nudge, you criticize the notion of economic man, the purely rational actor who, uh, quote, thinks and chooses unfailingly well and thus fits within the textbook's picture of human beings offered by economists, unquote. What would you say are some of the most striking ways human rationality is bounded? And does this have any consequences for how we should design our political and legal systems? Okay, great. So here are a few examples. Uh, human beings tend to focus on today and tomorrow and not next year or next decade. 
So um, people often think if there's a pain today that will produce a great outcome next week, uh, they don't want it, that pain. Or if there's something that would be great pleasure, maybe it's a brownie that has lots of calories, or maybe it's a couple drinks of alcohol that might have long-term bad consequences, they'll often think, I'll do the thing because I want the thing that's good to happen now. It's called present bias, and that's one departure from rationality, full rationality. Another is optimistic bias, which kind of a good bias in many ways, that people think that uh, things are going to go very well, even if the statistical reality is uh, more complicated. So there's something called the planning fallacy, which means people often think that, um, you know, if the project is due in a month, they'll be able to do it in two weeks. But if they looked at the track record for the relevant thing, it might actually usually take six weeks. And so they're unrealistically optimistic. And that's, that's a bias. It's called optimistic bias. Um, human beings are also loss-averse, which means that they dislike losses more than they like equivalent gains. So if you tell people you're going to lose 10 euro, they get really sad. And if you tell people you're going to get 10 euro, they get somewhat happy. <laughs> and the asymmetry between losses and gains, that's not something that economics picks up on, but it seems... Um, uh, robust, meaning people have it. Now, if you think about present bias, unrealistic optimism, and aversion to losses, there's a reasonable evolutionary explanation for all of them. Uh, when people were just becoming people uh, long ago, it's a crude way of saying long ago, uh, to be focused on today is pretty smart because you might die if you aren't. Uh, to be optimistic is probably good because it increases your capacity to uh, achieve. And to be averse to losses is also very important because if you're on the edge of survival, if you lose something of what you have, boom, you're dead. Whereas if you gain something, that's good, but it's not going to make the difference between life and death. But for people today, present bias and unrealistic optimism and special aversion to losses uh, can create all sorts of problems in our individual lives, health problems, environmental problems, uh, problems of uh, safety, uh, preventable deaths all over the world are connected with these things. And it's also the case that um, uh, all of them, as you say, are subject to policy interventions. So we could uh, help consumers make better choices by focusing them on the long term. And many countries have by indicating, for example, that this uh, product is um, a little more expensive than others. But over the life of, let's say, the refrigerator or the microwave oven or the automobile, you're going to save a lot of money because it's energy efficient or fuel efficient. Or if people are suffering from or benefiting from unrealistic optimism, you can give a warning that will make people, you know, notice that something is actually risky. And that can uh, focus them nicely on uh, sensible precautions. One issue which has been controversial in the U.S. for a long time, but which has tragically become very pressing in recent time, is the issue of gun control. The Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution famously states that, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. 
In a recent op-ed in uh, the Boston Herald, you stated that there is a profound disconnect between the actual meaning of the Second Amendment and the way in which it is being used politically. What do you mean by that, and how can this problem be overcome? Well, um, let's say the unambiguous minimal meaning of the Second Amendment is that the national government can't eliminate state militias, and this is connected with the American Revolution. So the federal government said, you know, Massachusetts and California, you can't have militias which have guns. That would be uh, a violation of the Second Amendment. Now, that isn't that interesting, the Second Amendment so understood, because the militias aren't that important anymore. So let's say the somewhat broader meaning of the Second Amendment, which the Supreme Court has embraced, is that uh, there's an individual right to gun ownership, even if it has nothing to do with militias. So if a state or the federal government says uh, people of New York can't have guns anymore, that would violate the Second Amendment. Uh, the reason there's a disconnect is that the idea that there's a right to have guns for, let's say, self-protection or hunting uh, is consistent with the idea that you can regulate gun ownership by ensuring that the people who get guns don't have mental problems, don't have track records of criminal violence, uh, have uh, ascertainable minimal degree of stability, uh, that they aren't getting certain kinds of guns, which are not necessary for hunting or self-protection, but are basically weapons by which you kill people if you're really mad or crazy or something. Uh, I'm being a little loose here, but the, the simple idea is that you can accept the idea there's an individual right to own guns while saying there's a lot of legitimate regulatory activity that could prevent children from being uh, killed when they're trying to go to school. Uh, in societies such as the United States, where the presence of firearms is already so widespread, is there really any way of effectively regulating gun ownership without resorting to very drastic measures? And also, do you have any sympathy for the argument that as long as criminals have guns, the general public should also have easy access to them for protection? Well, these are great questions, and I should say that while I feel I understand the constitutional side uh, pretty well on the specifics of gun policy, I, I don't consider myself an expert, uh, but I'll say a few things. Uh, the idea that once criminals have guns, people need guns uh, to protect themselves against criminals, that's rhetorically powerful, but it's too simple. So suppose it's the case that if uh, there aren't restrictions, let's say, on gun ownership, and I'll describe what they might look like in a moment, if there aren't restrictions on gun ownership, then on balance there's more safety. That's an empirical claim that is almost certainly false. So the true part of the comparison is some people, some of the time, are able to be safe because they have guns by which they can protect themselves against criminals. That's true. But the idea that uh, on balance there's greater safety if there are no gun control restrictions, that's an empirical claim that's actually extremely hard to defend. So the rhetorical point, if criminals have guns, non-criminals have to have guns too, uh, is a little like the, the claim 
guns don't peel, kill people, people kill people, which is, uh, you know, no better than saying bombs don't kill people, people kill people, and still bomb bombs are properly regulated. So the rhetorical argument seems to me not so helpful. Uh, in terms of what can be done, uh, a lot can be done. So I would want to respect the individual right of gun ownership, which the Supreme Court has recognized and which is part, at least, of this culture. But you could do a great deal to limit the likelihood that there will be gun violence by ensuring that the people who lawfully get guns are not people who are likely to commit gun violence. And uh, a commitment to doing that could lead to a panoply of, uh, of policies, you know, uh, waiting periods, restrictions on certain kinds of weapons, uh, background checks, um, some of which are in place, but which could easily be fortified. And the benefits of fortifying them is if you prevent, let's say, uh, 20 children from being killed, that's a number, but that's 20, you know, uh, unspeakably tragic outcomes, and the cost of achieving uh, prevention of those outcomes is that some people are more delayed in getting guns, and some people don't get guns. And that's, you know, in some cases that would be sad if they're entitled to get guns, but they don't get guns. But that's not nearly as sad as a dead 12-year-old girl. Um. So the, your statement that everybody, everyone should be for the Second Amendment must be interpreted as, as uh, um, this particular interpretation of uh, the Supreme Court interpretation and that it is not uh, inconsistent with regulatory policies. Yes. Um, more generally, do you believe that the U.S. Constitution should be less resistant to change? don't think so. I think there's no uh, abstract answer to how resistant to change a constitution should be. So uh, Norway and Brazil and uh, South Africa and Germany might have different answers to the question with what uh, ease should a constitution be amendable. But the extreme difficulty of amending the United States Constitution for whatever problems our country has had, and we've had plenty, uh, it's not at all clear that the extreme difficulty of constitutional amendment is a contributor. And it's, I think, very reasonable to think that the extreme difficulty of constitutional amendment has basically been a positive in the sense that it's um, prevented ill-considered constitutional change. And it's also been part of a process that has been uh, allowing constitutional change, not in the sense of changing the document, but changing the understanding of the document. And that means that the document is less frozen than it would otherwise be. So we have a very strong free speech principle now, which way outruns the original understanding of free speech. We have a very strong prohibition on sex discrimination, which certainly goes uh, far beyond anything that the Equal Protection Clause was originally un understood to entail. And that's um, uh, a tribute, I think, to a system that uh, it's a little like a machinery where if one thing's stuck, other things are going to move. 
and the, the, the movement is salutary in ensuring, let's say, uh, learning. And if you learn something about what rights people are entitled to, there's a place in the system for that to be incorporated. Uh, some combination of democratic understandings and judicial understandings. So I, I wouldn't say that for any particular country, the American solution is necessarily the right one. But I would say it's not clearly the wrong one for the United States. Um, given what you just said, are there any parts of the Constitution that you think should be revised or amended? Well... The answer to that surely has to be yes, and I'm thinking what would be uh, a good candidate. And offhand, the Electoral College is is an anachronism. So exactly what the shape of the preferred alternative would be is not clear. But the idea that you can have a system where someone's elected president, um, even though he or she, let's say, has been trounced in the popular vote, uh, that's not good. And there are a range of unfortunate effects from the electoral college system, which include a concentration on a relatively small number of states, uh, which is not ideal from the standpoint of the process of self-government. Uh, the argument for the electoral college is that um, you wouldn't want a system where the most populous states, like New York and California, have you know tremendous dominion over national policy. So some sort of mechanism by which uh, the smaller states have safeguards. Um, there's an argument for that. But there's also a possible argument, a reasonable argument, that the composition of the Senate, which is two senators for each state, is... Uh, at least does the trick or maybe does it too much itself uh, so that if the president were popularly elected, we, we wouldn't need to worry so much about the small states. Mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S., the Supreme Court is known to be highly politicized, something which may partly reflect the important role of judicial review and its implications for policymaking. The selection of a new Supreme Court justice was an important issue in the last presidential election, and to outside observers, at least many Europeans, it may look a bit strange to see an American presidential candidate run on a platform which involves a promise to select justices of a certain political persuasion in order to decide on certain policies. Do you find that the U.S. Supreme Court has become too politicized, and does it resemble some sort of a super parliament? And if so, could this legal political pathology be overcome? It's a great question. I'm thinking that in countries about which I know a little bit, uh, South Africa and Germany, there's a quite powerful constitutional court, and it's politicized in the sense that in both countries the constitutional court exercises a lot of authority, and in both of those countries uh, how it exercises its authority depends on the majority of the justices' political convictions. So what I'm pondering is whether the United States has comparatively more powerful constitutional court than a large assortment of countries, or whether there's instead just political candor about that. 
and I don't know enough about the comparative situation to have an answer to that. I do know that uh, I was in Canada a number of years ago, and a British judge was lamenting the grant of the power of judicial review with respect to rights to Canadian judges. And this was at a conference at Cambridge University where uh, many of the Canadian judges were present, and the the British judge was very, very negative, and both in private and public conversation was saying, this politicizes the judiciary, what's happening in Canada is horrible. And then he seemed like a very nice guy, very opinionated, very nice, and I asked one of my uh, friends, British friends, who is he, what does he think? And he said, oh, he's a, he's an extremely conservative judge. He was appointed by Prime Minister Thatcher to crush the labor unions. Oh, I thought. So when he was criticizing the uh, politicization of the Canadian judiciary, he was, uh, what is it? There was some issue where he was himself a highly political judge, and was he not aware of that fact? Did he think he was just applying the law? So, so this is a question about international comparison. I don't feel I know enough to have an answer. Uh, to the question whether the American court is too powerful, if I had to give a simple answer, I'd say yes. Uh, um, but it's, it's, it's complicated because when it exercises its power, th the question is, is it maintaining fidelity to something that's extremely important? So the Supreme Court kind of famously declined to rule that the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was unconstitutional. That was humble on the court's part. I think it was a terrible mistake. And if we have, you know, an action by our legislature or our states or our president that is uh, terribly invasive of individual rights properly conceived, then to have the Supreme Court stand in its way is extremely important. Um, so you have a, a, a question whether across a run of years the Supreme Court in any nation that is, let's say, um, not restrained, will on balance be an important safeguard of the, the right ideals or which will kind of imprint its own uh, policy commitments on, on the nation. And it's hard to have an abstract answer to that. I, I would dial back our Supreme Court's authority a tick or two, um, but if it's the case in the next, let's say, 20 years that Republican and Democratic leaders start doing things that are uh, terrible, then the judiciary might be the most important branch of our government. But should important policy issues such as capital punishment, abortion, gun control, immigration, gay marriage, etc., be decided by the Supreme Court rather than by elected politicians? And has the judicial system acquired too much power at the expense of the legislative branch? But let me give an example. So in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation is violative of our Equal Protection Clause, and no state may uh, discriminate on the basis of race in education. And uh, I think that was one of the great moments in uh, our, our nation's history. And in terms of the arc of judicial behavior uh, in, in the world, that was, that was a great moment. Um, so there's that. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled in the 1970s that discrimination uh, against women is going to be presumptively forbidden. 
And that seems to me uh, a very important ideal of hum human dignity and human equality, which it's, is properly understood to be part of our constitutional order. And it would be, I think, a form of, uh, what's the right word, of uh, rhetoric to say, should the question of uh, the relationship between men and women or whites and blacks be, be decided by our legislature or our court system? It's not clear there's an answer to that. If you have something where there's a group that's at a systematic disadvantage in political processes or a right that is so insistent and so legitimately connected with a constitutional principle that it's not subject to democratic override, I think that's uh, that's a case for judicial involvement. Now, with gun control um, uh, and affirmative action, let's say, uh, to give the democratic process a, a good deal of room to maneuver uh, seems to me quite reasonable. But if a, a public university, let's say, said, you know, uh, this year we're only going to allow African Americans in, no white people. That seems pretty offensive to the equality principle. And if a state said we're going to confiscate all guns here, uh, whether you like the Second Amendment or not, that violates the Second Amendment. So not acceptable. The same-sex marriage decision is, I think, legitimately um, controversial, meaning reasonable people are on both sides. And I've gone back and forth on it myself, I confess. Uh, uh, the... Um, the complexity is, on the one hand, in my view, the idea that people can't marry those they love merely because those they love are of the same sex is offensive to equality properly understood. Uh, on the other hand, the society, many societies have a long forbidden same-sex marriage, and uh, this is not uh, an issue that is obviously foreclosed by the Constitution, to say the least. So reasonable people are both sides. Uh, right now, if I had to give an answer, I'd say that by, you know, roughly now, uh, last few years, the prohibition on um, same-sex marriage is in the same universe of uh, discriminations as the uh, separation of whites and blacks. It's a form of uh, humiliation and of second-class citizenship, uh, which it's legitimate for a constitutional court to, uh, to uh, overturn. As a conclusion to our conversation, uh, I'd like uh, at last to uh, ask you, as a scholar, a writer, a columnist, and last but maybe not least, professional squash player, I'm curious to hear what plans you have ahead. Well, I hope to enter a professional tournament in uh, in July, and my hope is to get past the first round. I think that might be a reflection of unrealistic optimism. Some of the professional players are so much better than I am that it will take luck, but I don't think that's the question you really had in mind. Uh, I'm doing two things that I'm pretty excited about right now. One is my Holberg uh, Prize lecture, and I should say I'm uh, more honored than I can say by um, this, you know, this uh, uh, extremely generous um, 
recognition and honor. Uh, but the Holberg Lecture is uh, on freedom, and uh, I'm going to do a small book on that topic growing out of the lecture, and I'm very excited about that, both because the uh, size of the topic of freedom is inspiring and because the, the prize has given me an occasion to focus on uh, angles of freedom that I think have particularly, uh, what's the right word, 21st century uh, resonance. So stay tuned. Uh, I'm also doing a, a short book uh, called The Curse of Conformity, uh, which it's a, it's a, the title is a little more, um, a little bolder than the book. But the book is about the extent to which uh, organizations, uh, governments, uh, families uh, benefit from uh, saying every once in a while to every member, what do you really think? Professor Kassenstein, thank you for speaking with us on the Hallberg podcast. Thank you. A great pleasure.